0: Hello and welcome to The Menu, Monaco's food and drink programme. I am Markus Hippie. This week...
1: In times of crisis, food has been that unifying factor. And as soon as things started to go back more or less to normal and restaurants started to open in Kiev, people started to go there.
0: It's been almost six months since Russia launched a large-scale invasion of Ukraine. We hear about the role hospitality professionals have played in supporting the country. Then, on a lighter note, we speak to Patrick Rolf, founder of Copenhagen-based roastery April Coffee, who is about to head to Melbourne for the World Barista Championships.
2: Whoever wins is the person that is able to describe what they're serving the best and being able to just serve really delicious coffee, right? That's what it's come down to. So if you need to source very special coffees. We need to roast them very well and then brew them very well.
0: All that's the week's headlines and a dinner soundtrack recommendation too ahead in this episode of The Menu. contrary fighting back Russia's invasion, Ukraine has been dominating headlines for most of this year, recently also because of concerns about what the war will do to the planet's food security. Because Ukraine is one of the world's largest grain producers, the implications of the conflict will be felt across the world. But also within Ukraine, food producers and hospitality professionals have been playing a crucial role, volunteering both in war efforts and in feeding the public during the war. Two of my colleagues, Carlotta Ribello and Chris Jermak, recently returned from a reporting trip in Ukraine and can tell us more. Carlotta and Chris, you traveled around the country for quite a few days. Could you tell us more about these efforts by hospitality professionals, for example?
3: So I think, Marcus, the way I, you could almost divide what hospitality professionals were doing into three different areas. One was simply when the war started providing food aid both to the public within cities that were struggling to get access to food um, from some of the ones we spoke to, also offering things like food packages for the army, things like that, that were just sort of about keeping things running in the most severe stage of the crisis in terms of, you know, we went to, we didn't go to the front lines, but we went to places like Lviv and to Kyiv, and in Kiev, particularly a place that was at the center of the war for a good stretch at the beginning. This is the kind of thing that restaurants were doing. Then as the war has evolved, when we were there, a lot of these groups were simply working on volunteer efforts. And so that was another aspect of the shift, if you will, that locals were doing, raising money for the army by simply doing events, doing things for the public in order to raise money, selling food, having special events for the public. And then the third aspect of it I think that I would talk about is... Just helping Kiev and places like that get on with life, you know, get on with the normality of life, that was, I think, a key aspect. It really was for me, having been, you know, in Ukraine just before the war and then coming back. It was just how striking how vibrant restaurants were, how much they were a part of what people were doing, whether it was in Kiev or even when we visited Chernihiv in the north. They were just a key part of life. People were out in cafes. They were, it was part of you know having a good time, having some sense of normality despite the war going on around them.
0: How visible was World Central Kitchen, a non-profit organization founded by the top chef Jose Andres?
1: It was quite visible. In more than a couple of occasions, we saw the professionals, the tents with the big logo of the World Central Kitchen available. Uh, You would see it around, for example, even before we got into Ukraine. Chris and I obviously were doing the trip in reverse to what a lot of Ukrainians have done. We were getting into the country when the majority over the past few months has been trying to leave. And when we crossed the border in Perimishol from Poland into Ukraine, the train station in Poland had all these services, both outside the main terminal, but then there's a separate terminal for the trains that are going into Ukraine, where you have to go through, you know, passport checks, people coming in as refugees are given their documents, etc. And so there's a long line, we waited in the line, maybe for two, three hours, and if we wanted, it's just there available, the food and all the sustenance that is needed when you are, you know, it's hot. People have been traveling for hours or waiting in line for hours. For a lot of them, that might be the first hot meal of the day. Uh, They were also providing packaged food like, you know, protein bars and packaged drinks that they could put in their backpack as they continue traveling. So as soon as we started our trip into Ukraine, we immediately saw the efforts by the World Central Kitchen. And then throughout our trip, every train the train station that we traveled to had World Central Kitchen right outside in the city center, often near City Hall. And we saw this in Lviv, in Kiev, in Chernivtsi that there would be directions to how to get to the World Central Kitchen base in the area. And when we went further up to closer to the border with Belarus, to the city of uh, Chernihiv, which It's still largely surrounded by military, Ukrainian military, because uh, they recaptured the city months ago. But we had to go through numerous checkpoints, etc. When you get to the city, you still see a lot of this aid rolled by the World Central Kitchen available there.
0: I think it's amazing to hear what a visible role the World Central Kitchen is playing at the moment. I have just mentioned that I was in Warsaw just a couple of months ago and likewise over there next to the Central Station there was this huge tent complex built for Ukrainian refugees over there. But in Poland that was fenced off so outsiders could not get in but what I was able to see is that they had hundreds of people inside.
1: On that point, we started our uh, Poland trip in Krakow and on the train station in Krakow. There was also, as you said, it it existed in Warsaw, very similar. So the presence goes well beyond Ukraine's borders. But one person who can tell us a bit more about this that we spoke to is the head of passenger rail at the Ukrainian Rail Transport Authority, Oleksandr Petrovsky. And he spoke about the importance of having a world center kitchen present in rail stations. Let's have a listen.
4: Railways is like ecosystem. It's the largest enterprise in the country, 230,000 people everywhere. And early in the war, we felt that we should connect. And it just happened, to be honest, uh, on its own. We connected with different other effective groups that are active in the country. So concrete case with World Central Kitchen, we met them in the early days when they started setting up feeding stations for the people crossing the border and we partnered up so that uh, they at different uh, sites, different rail station. They started feeding people who were obviously like fleeing their homes without anything. And for them, it was very valuable. And a lot of them had to spend quite some time on the trains, you know, especially in Lviv, which was a point where a lot of people like arriving from, you know, after 20 hour journey from somewhere like Eastern, like Lysychansk, for example, in, in the East, they were arriving in Lviv and they had, sometimes spend one, two, even three days before they were able to board the next train to, say, Europe. And those could be, like, women with young kids, and the guys provided food for that. Now, like, time changed, but we continue, like, the collaboration evolved. Like, we don't want, like, to do the same things that were applicable in the earlier stages. Now, for example, there were few weeks when the railway infrastructure was very heavily attacked and was targeted and uh, because of that there were disruptions but as i said our motto is we never stop we always find a way to transport people so we partnered with these guys and uh, whenever the trains were stuck because of attack on rail infrastructure they were delivering food for people who were stuck on the train Anecdotally, actually, the founder Jose Andres, he was once on the train when that happened, and he himself was like feeding the entire train. It was so, so so funny. But uh, the thing is, I mean, for people, it's also important, right? That they know things can happen, right? There could be missiles somewhere hitting the rail infrastructure. And we need to reroute, and the journey takes you know, two or three more hours. But getting a hot meal like changes perspective. People feel that they are taken care of.
3: So Alexander Petrovsky there from the Ukrainian Rail Transport Authority and I think you hear how much of a crucial role the World Central Kitchen played so much so that even he himself part of the reason we got into that conversation was he actually had a patch on his shoulder from World Central Kitchen so it just shows you how much of a role they have played throughout this how important they've been to the running of rails in the country as well as everything else. I
0: wonder if Jose Andres understood when he was launching this organisation some years ago how important it would eventually be. Now, Chris, you mentioned earlier about Kiev that when you both were there, you were surprised how normal life felt there. Can you tell us more about those those impressions when it came to, for example, food, drink cafes, restaurants? What was life like there?
3: Absolutely. I mean, life in Kiev was surreally normal, I would say, in, in many ways. And the main way that that was reflected in my mind was in the cafes and restaurants. Uh, you know, one place that was a regular hotspot that we have spoken on Monaco 24 about before, for example, was Zigzag. It was this restaurant in an area of Kiev. That was always hopping. It was a popular spot before the war. I had been there before the war, and I was just quite struck. I remember one of the first days when we got to Kiev, we went with our photographer as well and, and with Olga Tokarek too, Zigzag, they had mentioned it, oh, we should go back there. Once we've done an interview, I remember on, on air with Lesia Vasilenko, and she was just going into Zigzag before <laughs> before doing the interview with us on, on the Monocle Daily. So it's this hopping place, which I think is one of the many examples of just how life was continuing. It was very strange. And then at the same time, you know, in other parts, there are also newer ones. We have one example from later in the the week that we were there, where we kind of stumbled upon or brought to this, this other place, which was celebrating its two-year anniversary, its birthday, pure naive. And um, they were a good reflection of, on the one hand, total life back in this place, right? I mean, it was a night of music. You could hear the vibrancy, people sitting outside of it everywhere. It was exciting to be there, but yet it was also a volunteer project for Ukraine to help the rebuilding process. But it was just the sign of life. I don't know, Carlotta, what what you feel as well, but the, the life, the vibrancy of these places was really incredible.
1: Yeah, it was quite striking. Just to, There was a uh, quite beautiful poetic defiance in just carrying on. I think that for me was what was most striking but as Chris just mentioned Pure Naive was one of the places we visited and let's have a listen with its co-founder.
5: My name is Paolo Hook. I am a CEO and founder of Pure Naive. It's a natural wine bar located at Zolotivarota district at Kiev. We do a great food and volunteering as well. Yeah.
3: Tell me about tonight. What what is happening here tonight?
5: Uh, yeah, it's a charity day. Uh, we try to uh, not to celebrate our birthday because uh, war is still uh, over there, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's still here. Uh, and we try to collect some money for our friends, volunteers, uh, to their project uh, for restoring uh, three houses at uh, Kolichivka in uh, Chernigov uh, region all of this is for this project yeah
3: it's loud there's music it's an impressive turnout no
5: yeah because you can't raise money and just posting to instagram you need to do something that people come and can't leave their money for some fundraising projects yeah
3: can i take you back if you don't mind a little bit what kind of things were you doing particularly at the time that the invasion started on the 24th of February. You had so many volunteers here, it seems like. What, what kind of projects were you doing then? Yeah.
5: On the first march, we start to prepare food for the Suu, and we prepare around uh, six, 60,000 uh, portions from the start of the war and, and deliver uh, around 500 uh, packages for people in uh, Kyiv and Chernyiv region.
3: Amazing. Over how much time was that? How long were you doing that? I guess you're still somewhat uh, it's, it's doing. Three that. Months. Three, three months from the first March. Uh, and since then, you're sort of shifting, I guess, a little bit to more like raising money. And have you have you done other events like tonight?
5: Uh, yeah, uh, we still volunteering, but we uh, do this by raising money on some of the events. And we a few days ago we started our foundation and we try to collect money from different businesses around Ukraine to help some volunteer initiatives around Ukraine.
3: And tell me a little about the other side, if I could ask. The the food, the wine that you serve here, where where does it come from? What kind of food and wine do you serve?
5: Yeah, we work mostly with the natural wine from the small wine guards and small wineries around Europe. And we prepare seasonal food with some French style.
3: And just tell me a little about this neighborhood. Why Why did you pick this spot where, where we Actually, are?
5: Actually, we're trying to find a place in this neighborhood for like three years, yeah, because we like the vibe and people are gathering around this uh, neighborhood, yeah. It's like artists, designers, uh, uh, programmers and uh, some engineers. Most of them are open-minded for a lot of experiences. and We just want to create a place that uh, feels safe and supportive for them.
3: And just finally could I ask maybe, it's always a strange question, but how, how normal does it feel right now?
5: It feels normal and awful at uh, the same time, because you need to, to uh, continue your normal life, but uh, there is a war around uh, everywhere, and anytime you can't uh, uh, see a rocket or something from uh, coming from the fall, and, and this is crazy, but uh, we need to still uh, continue our work and need to uh, continue our life.
0: Pablo Hook co-founder of Pure Naive, there, I'm wondering what happened later that evening. How was the curfew being felt in Kiev?
1: So that's the thing that's interesting about this interview. You heard the music, you heard the people. It was buzzing, it was packed, but it was early because there's a curfew in place. The curfew is from 11, but it means most places stop selling drinks and food from 9, more or less, because even the staff needs to get home and properly closes at 10. Maybe supermarkets might be open until 10.15, 10, 10.20 10, if... The owners live close by, But by ten thirty the city is gone. So this interview was recorded, I guess around eight p m or so. And almost as a sign of things, going back to normal, it ended with the police being called because neighbours were complaining about the noise. And we were speaking to Pablo and to other of the members of the team of Pure Naive about how for them, it's almost like there's no bigger sign that things are back to normal when you have neighbours complaining about noise, despite the curfew and despite that it was a Friday night and quite early. It's important to, you know, I know he mentioned that in the interview, but This was a combination of their two-year anniversary along with an event where 100% of all money would Mm. go to rebuilding and to the armed forces, not even just a part of it, all the money raised. So that was even more of a reason to have people there. And everything was settled. That was fine. The police didn't shut down the party. They just turned the music down slightly. But it was quite funny to see that Even with all the concerns and everything that's happening in the curfew, there are certain things that do signal normality when it comes to going out into bars.
3: I just add as well, it was interesting that part of this little sign of the tensions, though, at the same time was the fact that apparently one of the things the neighbors said was, like, you are not respecting the war in Ukraine with the party that you were having, not realizing that this was actually literally an event to raise money, as Carla was saying, for the war effort. So it does show how the war kind of also plays into that everyday life, even as things are, are getting somewhat back to normal.
0: Absolutely. Just finally, now that you're back in London, do you think this trip in Ukraine taught you something about the importance? Importance of not only food, but also the hospitality industry.
1: It definitely highlights how, you know, I think for me, and it's a difficult comparison to make, but it's a bit of the same lesson that I think cities have been learning since the pandemic, which is the role that the hospitality industry and food can have in bringing people together, in giving you a sense of belonging to a place. It's not just about, you know, the luxurious act of going out. It actually, we know that food is a unifying factor, you know, throwing dinner parties, connecting with friends, sharing conversations at a dinner table. And in times of crisis and of conflict, of course, one being the pandemic and the other being a war, which are very different. But food has been that unifying factor. And as soon as things started to go back more or less to normal and restaurants started to open in Kiev, people started to go there. We went on one of our dinners with our photographer and our correspondent to Crimean Tatar restaurant in Kiev, which was, it's the only in the city, the people that are behind the restaurant had become displaced when the annexation of Crimea happened in 2014. They eventually moved to the capital, started this restaurant. And when everything went to, into shutdown in Kiev at the start of the war, they were one of the first places to reopen mm. because they realized it was important to have a place for, you know, emergency workers to go to, officials to go to and eat, journalists to go and eat because you didn't have places to buy food. So there should be one restaurant. And even and our photographer shared with us the story that... As soon as he found out that the restaurant was open, he was there the next day. And for almost a month, that was where he would go out to eat every day because it was impossible to have food otherwise. And then you immediately create a sense of community with the other people going there. For me, that was quite an important lesson. We shouldn't underestimate the value of hospitality in times of need.
3: And I would add to that from my perspective. I mean, we all experienced this a bit in the pandemic, right? The importance of restaurants and the hospitality industry you know it's something that you only discover i think once you miss it for a while just how important it is in your life in in the sense of normalcy that you have in your everyday life and that was something that i think was reinforced for me in a whole other way being in ukraine you know we spoke to some people about that daily life. And it was interesting that some people outside of Ukraine, whether it was on social media or other aspects, would question these scenes of normal life in a restaurant or our photographer, for that matter, talked about even going for a cycle ride in the city, would question it as, if, as if that somehow meant, well, then the war can't be that serious because you're out there, you're doing your hobbies, you're seeing people, you're eating food. And yet, being there, it was just so striking that this is such an important part of life, even in wartime, to give you some sense of the belonging, the, the community that Carlotta was talking about, and just generally to give you a sense that life goes on, life continues, even if you are facing very, very difficult times in your life and in the country.
0: Carlotta, Rabello and Chris Chermak, thank you so much for joining us here on The Menu. Now on a slightly lighter note, let's continue with this week's food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Lillian Fawcett.
6: Italy has launched infringement proceedings against Slovenia in a bid to protect the authenticity of Italian balsamic vinegar. The spat got started last year when Slovenia began to apply the label to essentially any wine vinegar mixed with concentrated fruit juice. Italy sees this as a threat to the reputation of its famous, geographically protected Modena balsamic vinegar and to a market worth 1 billion euros. A famed Hong Kong dim sum parlor has closed after 104 years in operation. The owners of Lin Huang Tea House announced the decision this week, citing pandemic disruption. It was Hong Kong's oldest tea house having opened in 1918 and served traditional Cantonese dishes as well as dim sum. Domino's Pizza has closed its restaurants in Italy after a failed seven-year bid to win over diners in the birthplace of pizza. The fast-food chain's franchise holder in the country filed for bankruptcy earlier this year, amid falling sales and competition from more traditional pizzerias. Domino's had sites in five Italian cities, including the capital Rome, but never in Naples, where the Margherita was first created. And the number of Scottish whisky distilleries has hit a record high since the Second World War, according to data from the Scottish Whisky Association. Asian and African markets have proved particularly lucrative despite disruption caused by the pandemic and Brexit.
0: Thanks, Lillian. You are listening to The Menu on Monocle 24. Before it's time for this week's Dinner soundtrack recommendation, let's hear from one of Scandinavia's best baristas. Patrick Rolf is not only the winner of a recent barista competition in Sweden, he's also the founder of April Coffee Roastery in Copenhagen. And now he's getting prepared to head to the World Barista Championships in Melbourne, which take place a bit later this year. So what did it take to win the title of the best barista in Sweden and to get a ticket to Australia? I spoke to Patrick a bit earlier to find out.
2: I mean, as most countries, there's a lot of practice going on and then naturally like you have to make the tastiest coffee on the day, right? The competition format is pretty simple. We serve a few different courses to four different what we call sensory judges. It's basically, you know, whoever wins is the person that is able to describe what they're serving the best and being able to just serve really delicious coffee, right? That's what it's come down to. So you need to source very special coffees. We need to roast them very well and then brew them very well.
0: So after you won in Sweden, you have relocated to Zurich for a bit because you're training for the world championships that take place in Melbourne a bit later this year. Why Zurich? What do you hope to learn from there? So in in Zurich, we
2: have a special coffee roastery called Mame and Emi and Mathieu. Uh, The owners of that company are both actually top finalists in that same very competition. So historically, they've done really well in the past and I'm always a big believer in learning from others in everything I do, pretty much. So it makes sense if you go up in a world championship and you want to win, then you need to kind of learn from the people that have been up there in the top before you.
0: When we talk about those ultimate professionals when it comes to coffee, what kind of things are you talking about? What can they teach you? Do you recognize something that you don't know already you should know by the time you head to Melbourne?
2: I mean, that's a, that's a tricky one, right? I think it's, I mean, I've obviously been a coffee roaster for a long time and a coffee brewer for a long time. So like all of the basics are there. It's more about like any competition, I think in any kind of format has, you know, more current things that are, are going on. And it's more about being in tune with what is kind of in trend for the competition right now. And then always just perspective. One of the challenging things in the competition is that you know I'm going to Melbourne half across the world I have judges from all over the world tasting the same coffee all with different backgrounds and experience in terms of taste. So a lot of it is just about taking my coffee basically out on the road and having a lot of people taste it to get perspective and feedback on you know how is it actually tasting. Description is a big part of the competition. And then just fine tuning, learning what they've done before me, so I can go up and be prepared. There's a lot of small notes, you know, that you don't really think about that you have to consider doing this kind
0: of stuff. What kind of small notes are we talking about?
2: I mean, simple thing. For example, like we we have a milk course in the competition, and I can't really import milk to Australia. That's a little bit difficult. So then I have to figure out how to find the you know best milk, process the best milk, source from local farms there's a lot of small stuff like that right and then I'm most likely going to be roasting my coffee locally because there's a, always a challenge with with bringing your coffee you don't really want to bring it on a train so a lot of stuff like that sourcing ingredients you know we we have one course this is what we call a signature beverage where we basically kind of similar to what a bartender does where we source a bunch of different ingredients but it's in Australia and you technically it's illegal to import most things at least like plant based stuff right it's stuff like this that you kind of have to prepare It becomes a little bit tricky.
0: Well, you certainly have pushed the industry forward already. You are Swedish, but you have opened your cafe, Roastery April Coffee in Copenhagen, about five years ago. Tell us about the concept.
2: It's basically, you know, how can we make coffee better? That's the only kind of question we ask ourselves. And it goes in any kind of shape and form, anything from farm level. What does the producers do? How do we trade coffee better? How do we trade it more sustainable? How do we roast it better, make it taste better? I'm very interested in, you know, everything from alternative coffee brewing methods like uh, in Sears in Switzerland, we obviously have Nespresso and we do do a bunch of Nespresso pods. I recently kind of ventured into instant coffee as well. It's just about trying to push the boundaries. It was important for me when I started to, like the main kind of foundation or question I've been running with is, is the fact that the world doesn't need another coffee roastery. So it's about challenging our own existence, if that makes sense, right? So if I want a coffee roastery in this industry and kind of take up market shares from others, I need to make sure to validate that by creating something valuable that wasn't there before me, right? So it's all about kind of trying to push the boundaries for how coffee can taste.
0: You're also about to launch your first April store in Seoul. Why South Korea?
2: I love it. I think that's the the initial answer. I've been to Seoul a few times now and it's Just such an interesting, modern, diverse, fast, growing, very modern culture, right? It's really interesting how they've been developing over the last years. They're just interested in quality, which is something I think Copenhagen also resonates a lot with. There's a lot of parallels between Copenhagen and and Seoul historically as well. So it's you know one is a place I would love to spend more time in. Two, we we know some great people in Korea that I've been wanting to do stuff with for quite some time. So it kind of all came together. We found this beautiful shop in the Hangnam District, and it's been basically two and a half years in the making now. Covid obviously made it a little bit more more challenging, but uh, we're basically scheduled for open for late October now, early November. So I'm gonna spend a few weeks in Seoul very soon.
0: Just finally, Patrick, what are your top tips for a great cup of coffee?
2: For me, it's all about the farm. It's all about the raw material. So, you know, buy from roasters that source directly from small producers. Make sure the roaster doesn't burn the coffee. I think that's important. Uh, We want a little bit of lighter coffee than what people drink today. And that's basically it, you know, a little bit of good water. It doesn't have to be complicated as long as the, the roast and the green coffee, like the raw material is good.
0: Patrick Roth, there. He's the founder of April Coffee Roaster in Copenhagen and will be competing at the World Barista Championships in Melbourne in September. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we're back with a new episode again on Friday at twenty hundred London time. That's at midday if you're listening in San Francisco. Meanwhile, do check out our Menu spin-off show Food Neighbours for Great Recipes. And, obviously, you will find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle I am Markus Hippie. our studio engineer with Jack Chewers with editing assistance from Kelly McLean. Once again, we finish this program with a dinner soundtrack recommendation from Ukraine. Here is Ruslana with Wild Dancers. Thanks for listening.
6: Just maybe...